Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are ministering to us. And we pray by your grace and in your mercy that you will continue to minister to us through your word. Father, please stir us up to love and to good deeds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The text that were read today center around a theme that you may or may not have noticed when they were being read, but interestingly enough, sovereignty, it also is the theme of today's call it that we prayed earlier, which I didn't know ahead of time. God knows. The theme is good works, fruitfulness, or in the case of Isaiah chapter 5, the lack of fruitfulness of the nation of Israel, which led to their exile in Babylon. Good works many of which the rich young ruler had done thoroughly, but the last and truly important good works he turned away from doing. We'll come back to that in a minute. Years ago, the Lord caught my attention with a passage that was not read today, but I've never gotten over it. I quote it quite often, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for you are God's workmanship or handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. I remember preaching that text first uh, when I was also receiving, when we, my wife and I, were receiving from Sally's grandmother this tablecloth that she had made out of crochet. Now, you think of crochet with yarn. This is crochet with fine cotton thread. And it was a large tablecloth, 12 feet long. And she had made little tiny medallions meticulously and then woven them together over time to make the tablecloth. And as I examine that. If I put it here before you today, you would be blown away like I was imagining the hours and hours and hours that she spent crocheting this tablecloth, this fine cotton thread to create this beautiful handiwork, which we then still use to this day on special occasions. It's hard to describe, but I want you to imagine something beautiful and intricate and seemingly impossible that would astonish you. Maybe it's a, you know, a wood carving of a duck, or maybe it's a, a piano piece written by Rachmaninoff, or whatever it may be in your mind. This is handiwork. This is handwork. And then reflect on the verse that I quoted to you. You are God's handiwork. You are a living, growing work of art and goodness created in Christ Jesus for a purpose. Make a difference in the world for the good of the world. And that is good as defined by the author of good and the source that is of all that is truly good, God, our Heavenly Father, the source of all that is true. By the way, that's often significantly different from what people think is their good, particularly in the world that we serve. These good works are not for our glory. As wonderful as your skills may be at leading teams in the corporate office or your magic in the classroom, but they are for the sake of others and for the glory of God so that they might see behind the path of walk that, that you walk and the good works that you do, the God who created you and saved you, the author of goodness, so that you might be able to point beyond yourself for the hope and explaining the hope by which you live. All of this is a riff on a familiar verse. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And we can conclude we listen to the verses today, the passages today, and all that I've just said so far, that good works 
fruitfulness for the sake of others are very important to God. It is good to do good in the world as the people of God. It's a core calling of our discipleship. We live to proclaim Christ by word and deed. We live beyond ourselves for the sake of others. We are not the end game. For God so loved the world. Titus speaks of good works. If you have your Bibles, open to Titus. I chose the Titus passage over Ephesians 2, which is my favorite verse about good works, because there's this larger message that comes so through so clearly in the book of Titus. Titus takes up about one and a third pages on my Bible. If you open it up, it's just a little tiny book. And yet Paul uses the phrase good works six times in this book. In addition, he says the presbyters that Titus is there to appoint must be lovers of good. He speaks of people who profess the Christian faith but deny it by their works. They did not have good works. He warns the church or encourages the church to do good works and not be unfruitful. He speaks of older women who teach what is good to the younger women. He speaks of the goodness of God. There are 10 to 12, depending upon how you count it, references to good works or goodness in the book of Titus. Tiny little book. That was on Paul's mind, right? (laughs) It may well have had something to do with the gospel's impact on the nation of Crete. Crete was proverbial for being unworthy, untrustworthy, violent, deceptive, um, a place filled with snake oil salesmen, violence everywhere, bribery and corruption and gluttony. And Paul seemed to know that if the gospel was going to penetrate such a hardened culture, that there would be the necessity of Christians to do good, to make a difference in the world, to sort of break the system of evil that was so rampant there. But in the book of Titus, if you read it carefully, Paul was very careful to put good works into a greater context so that there's no mistake about how those actions fit into the overall plan of salvation. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the beginning of the conversation is grace. The end of the conversation is good works. So the first movement of a changed life so that a person could say that I am the handiwork of God, that's his promise to me, for the sake of good, the first movement is grace. Grace is a full stop at the door of the Christian life. Let me check your ticket before you come in, right? Remember that parable where Jesus talks about a wedding feast and people come in and they have to have the right clothes on? Well, it's really important to remember that custom, the custom of that day, was that if you didn't come with the right clothes, the host provided them for you before you came in. So it's not like you had to figure it out before you got there. You could get received when you walked in the door. But you just still had to have on the good clothes, the clothes that I provide. And at some point, in a real way, every one of us who follows Jesus must realize that we are primarily, we begin this conversation, It all begins with being loved and forgiven by Jesus, even though we don't deserve it. We have our own story. And if it's not some decisive point, we know and believe that grace is the foundation of our lives. 
And if you lose perspective on that, just look in the mirror every once in a while. It becomes real clear, real quick, that you don't deserve this grace of God. Then having come into the wedding feast, so to speak, having entered the household of God through the door, grace walks the rest of the way with us the rest of our lives. There's this beautiful statement in Romans chapter five that we have entered into a grace in which we stand. We used to live in Western Canada. We love to go mountain hiking up in the high passes. And if you've ever been there, you know, uh, most of those paths are rock strewn. They're, they're, they're hard paths, there's rocks everywhere, but you will come through a cut in the mountains uh, where there's water flowing through and quite often you'll get on the other side of it, eventually get on the other side of it. And it just opens up into this Alpine Valley. And it is spectacular. The grass is green. The water is flowing. There's flowers everywhere. It's unbelievable amount of flowers if you're there in the right time of year. It is spectacular. And to me, that's what I've always thought when I read Romans 5. We, we, we've entered into this grace in which we stand. Only in this particular place, that mountain field, that alpine valley, never ends. It's as broad as you can see in every direction. That's the grace that Titus, excuse me, that Paul says to Titus, trains us to renounce ungodliness, trains us to renounce worldly passions. Sinful deeds, evil deeds, are rooted in wrong thinking and sinful hearts. Regarding wrong thinking, grace relentlessly roots out our resistance and confusion about who God is. It just keeps coming back. Whatever we think about God, the trump sound is, the, the thing that overwhelms it is, it's about grace. It's about grace. It's about grace. It's about grace. Just take the time to let it soak in. Regarding sinful desires, through God's grace, our hearts and desires are transformed as we come again and again and again to know the love and grace and mercy of God. Love, undeserved, free, breaks into our lives. It rolls like an ocean in its fullness over us. Grace, mercy, and love are transformative. They transform us and train us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That's what the message of Titus is. The image that seems to be God's favorite in regard to this is agricultural, olive trees and grapevines. And that's the basis of the rebuke to Israel. I created you. I planted you. I provided for you. I gave you a fertile field so that life for me would flow through you so that grapes beautiful grapes would be yielded for the sake of the world. Blessings by which the world can come to see and know who I am. But instead, Israel had produced bitter fruit, sour, tiny, nasty things. I grew up in East Texas, and we're, there, were this, there was a plum orchard across the street from the church we went to. And we'd go pick the plums, and invariably we'd take a bite of them and throw them and spit them out. They were so bitter and so sour. John chapter 15, Jesus says, abide in me, share my very life, abide in my love, abide in my grace, and you will bear much fruit. So Israel's refusal to bear good fruit meant that the life of God was not flowing through them. And it's such a clear connection that the point Jesus is making, and it's made throughout the scriptures, is that there is no fruit, that means there's no life. But if there is fruit, it's because there's life. It's that flame of the life of grace that the rich young ruler missed. He says to Jesus, I've spent my life following the commandments. 
I've done them all faithfully and consistently. And Jesus picks up on that, asks him about the last five, the ones about moral behavior and about ethics. And Jesus doesn't ask about the first three. I think it's because he knows the answers. But the rich young ruler doesn't pick up on that. He just lumped, yeah, I jump, I, I'll jump into that. I've done all those things. I've fulfilled all the obligations of the law. But he comes back and says, but what else do I need to do? Because I sense there's something wrong. What else must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers him directly based on the first three, which is about loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength. These concrete actions in the Ten Commandments are brought into one choice. Sell what you have, give it away, and follow me. Let go of the things that you love the most. Let go of the things that you take consolation in. Let go of the things that define you. How do we know this man's name? What was his title? The, come on, rich young ruler. His money was his identity. The thing that he was proudest of, Jesus says, open your hands, let it drop, and stand there with your hands empty. And the last great work is no work at all. It is a letting go. It is a releasing of work. The one work you can do to guarantee human life is not a human work. It is yielding. It is surrendering. It is giving up. It is being like we said earlier today in the service, like a little child who is not here to prove what he or she can accomplish. The rich young ruler turned away sad because that was the one thing he would not do. I didn't say could not do, I said would not do. He would not become a true worshiper. I think he was a churchgoer. I'm sure if he kept all the law, he went to temple faithfully. But he never went to temple to worship God wholeheartedly with his hands empty before the God of grace. And Jesus brought it to to a head with one decision, an action of release and receiving. Now, here's the marvelous reality, brothers and sisters, that if we let go and grace fills our lives, and we start to understand the beauty of Jesus, then good works will be returned to us as a means of giving testimony to God and actually doing good for others rather than as a way of essentially promoting ourselves. The path of God of good works is God's program of fruitfulness and blessing through us for the sake of others. So that brings us back to the consummands and those being received. You have been created for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should do them. So the question is, how has God crafted you to do good? What's the story of your life? What's the story of all of our lives? I would encourage all of us to pay attention to a couple of things. The dark times where our longings are most exposed and to ask yourself, what does this mean about the way God has wired me? What does this mean about the longings that I have and what kind of person and what are the ways in which God has given me a longing to be fulfilled and reproduced in Jesus Christ because it's an unmet longing in me. And the other question is, what are the moments of transcendence? What are the moments when you feel the greatest sense of convergence? So I would encourage you as you look back on your life to combine these two into one, your greatest longings and your greatest sense of convergence, and begin to ponder how do those things indicate the particular good work that you're supposed to do? 
Overlay that with the accidents of your training and the things that you've begun to love over your life. What are the good works God has created you to do? What is the platform for your presence in the world? And the, the question would be, are you using that platform to redirect people beyond you to the Lord who is the source of life and the guide for your action? I love doing confirmation. One of the things that I ask the people I confirm uh, every time we get together is, what would you like for me to be praying for you? And I, I, I do pray for them. I pray a lot. Uh, after the meeting yesterday, I prayed in the afternoon. In the afternoon, I went back to the, my hotel room and prayed for on my knees for, for the people I'm confirming. I prayed in the night. Like I said earlier before, I tried to sleep through the night. God wouldn't let me. You know what I mean? And he kept saying, pray, pray, pray. Prayed this morning. Years ago, one of the first people I confirmed was a young woman. And she said, please pray for me. And I said, what, what, what do you want me to pray? And she said, I'm a violin teacher. And she said, I'm a really, really good violin teacher. I'm excellent. I know what I'm doing, and I'm quite skilled at it. But I got a problem. She said, I hate my students. You should laugh about that. <laughs> I can't stand my students. They drive me nuts. And she said, therefore, I teach violin, but I have not been able to teach music. She said, would you pray for me that I will love my students? Because I don't want to teach violin. I want to teach music. And that, to me, sums it up. That sums up the difference between the rich young ruler as he was and as Christ wanted him to be. Maybe he would have been a wealthy person, but what we have done with his wealth to make the world sing, to fill the world with the goodness and the presence of God. What do we do? Do we do it to demonstrate our skillfulness or do we do it to teach people to sing? And that's what the Lord wants to do in our lives so that we bear fruit which nourishes the world through our actions. So I encourage you to reflect on this question. How has God hardwired you? How has he crafted you? How has he made you to do good? What do you love to do? And how can you do what you love for the sake of a greater love? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.